Welcome to Addiction in the Family, Episode 35, A Sibling's Perspective. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions have affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mine Out Emotional Wellness Center in Texas. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we interview Ashley Nowakowski, who grew up in the shadow of her brother and over time of his addiction. She talks about the impact this had on her, where she found her own healing, and how this all led her to write her book, The Shadow Child. All this after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Let's jump into our interview with Ashley. Welcome. Very uh, happy to have you on the program today. And if you want to take a moment and maybe just introduce yourself to our listeners and let us know what are you doing on a show called Addiction and the Family? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, my name is Ashley Nowakowski, and I am a sibling of somebody who used substances, got into recovery, and then relapsed. Yeah, well, and unfortunately, that is sometimes part of the journey. And I know you talk about that. You didn't mention author, but you talk about that in your book. And do you mind giving us just a really quick look at what's in that book and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Well, I've been sharing my story for over 10 years publicly, going into schools, working with families. And I've always kind of wanted to write a book. But then once my brother relapsed, I learned so much during that relapse that I didn't learn previously that I wanted to share with people who are also struggling or in my shoes being a sibling. So in my book, the first section is kind of the story, what happened, and then the second section is kind of like 
how I was able to help myself throughout this journey. Yeah, and I noticed the stuff in the second half of the book certainly is not restricted to, here's what'll help you if you're a sibling. Right. It's like a lot of very universal things that I really get behind and match very closely with the kind of message that we talk about here. And how was it for you writing that book? It was emotional. It was, I don't want to say rewarding, but I felt like I was giving other people a gift that maybe I didn't have. So by like learning this stuff and going through it again, I'm like, okay, this hurts really bad, but maybe this can help somebody else in the future. Yeah, there's a really cool saying that we're best suited to help the person that we used to be. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that resonates for you. Could you talk a little bit about what you hear in that? Yeah, I used to be somebody who was like super caught up in my brother's substance use and in his recovery. And I think if he never would have relapsed, I would have stuck in that cycle. Um, it wasn't until his relapse that I learned that I was just as sick in his recovery as I was when he first started using. So it was like kind of something that like I never would have learned if this thing never happened. And I can see other people being stuck in that cycle as well. When you're talking about being just as sick in his recovery as you were in his using, I think of a lot of people who are maybe newer to recovery, especially newer to family recovery, might not really understand what you would even mean by that. Because of course, the, the common thing is to go in and say, well, I'm not the one with the problem. You know, I don't have an issue. This person has an issue and either I'm going to push them away or I'm going to try and save them or something. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned in that? And what do you see now when you look back? Yeah, you know, his early using years were, were really hard on our family. And then once he got into treatment and he got sober and he started living the sober life, I see a lot of patterns that never change. So even though he was sober, my parents and I still function like okay, what if he relapses? Or don't say that in case he does relapse. We lived in this fear that if we did or said something incorrectly, that it would be our fault and we would cause him to relapse. And the patterns were the same as when he was using. And it took a lot of therapy to kind of undo some of those patterns. Yeah, a lot of people, of course, don't recognize those patterns while they're in them. Mm -hmm. And one of the underlying assumptions that a lot of family members have that they may not even realize they have is the idea that they're responsible for someone else's recovery and someone else's behavior. And if I play my cards just right, if I say all the right things and I avoid saying all the wrong things, then everything's going to be okay. And do you relate to that? Is that, is that a mode of thinking that you would say you had going on? I definitely had that going on, yes, <laughs> I definitely did. I don't know if it was like a conscious thing. If you would have asked me, I'd probably been like, no, I don't believe that at all, but not until I really looked deep within myself and within my actions did I say, oh, yep, okay, maybe I was. And if you had the opportunity to go back and talk to younger Ashley about that, what would you say? I would say, you can only control what you can and things that you can't control, you need to let go. Um, Cause I think even though I didn't want to control him, I wanted to make this environment where he would 
be sober and happy and healthy. And I would say to myself, you can't live that space for him. You need to help him be healthy by being healthy yourself and controlling only what you can control. And I think a lot of people could get down with that idea of, I'll just control the things I can, I'll let go of the rest. A lot of people say, okay, amen, here you sister, let's do it. But then maybe have a lot of trouble figuring out which one's which. Right. And what would you say to somebody who's maybe struggling with that part of the equation? Yeah, I think that's really hard because, you know, again, we just want what's best for them. And so anytime I like question myself, should I do this or shouldn't I do that? I have to take a step back and say, you know, is this my thing? If I step in here, is that really going to help? him or is it going to set him back or does it really not make a difference so when i get stuck in those cycles of like okay it what can i do in this situation i have to kind of like look at it as a third party and say okay this i can help with but this i absolutely can't because that is not anything i can control yeah and i wonder I think a lot of people just have to learn that through hard experience, just like a lot of people around their own addiction have to learn through hard experience. What can I control? What I, what can I not? All that sort of thing. Can you think of any sort of pro tips that you might be able to tell someone to be able to differentiate those things without having to just do it all through trial and error? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, I would definitely say that you know, it has to be something that they want to do. So if you're trying to make it so that they have to do it, then, you know, you're taking the control from them. It's almost like, I don't know, passing the torch to them and saying, you're in control of yourself, but that doesn't really help. Do you think that's something, just being able to say to your loved one, you're responsible for all your own thoughts and feelings and actions, and I can't take responsibility, or I'm not taking responsibility for those things because, Hey, if I, we could control our loved ones better, everyone probably would have done that by now. Right. If we could lecture and advise people better, it should have worked by now. So if we can let go of that idea of, I am responsible for your outcomes, then that might be helpful. What do you think makes that difficult? Well, I think it makes it difficult, at least from my own experience, because every time we would say that, it, get, it would be thrown back. Like, oh, well, you didn't support me. You weren't there for me. You didn't do this, that, and the next thing. And so that's why I did this. So I think as we're, um, if we're been in it for a while and we're used to these dynamics, and then we shift something and say, you know what? you're in charge of yourself they kind of go oh no what do i do and then the backlash happens you should have done this i should have done this and then all of a sudden you start questioning yourself like oh shoot is this my fault and so i think that's where those patterns you stay stuck in those patterns well i hear that if you take it on mm -hmm. i agree that Sometimes people, especially in their disease, and saying the disease is not limited to just the act of using, because mm -hmm. what I'm hearing is these patterns continued. I saw that in your book. These patterns continued even when he's sober, or you're hoping he's sober, because I hear also in the book you kind of question, I don't know for sure when he was sober and when he wasn't. Mm -hmm. But assuming, let's just go with it face value, assuming he's sober, the same family dynamics are happening. He still wants to put everything on you. It's still up to you though, isn't it? About whether or not you take it on. It is. 
It definitely is. But I think it's hard, like when you've been living that way for so long to say, I'm not doing this. Cause then again, you go back to, if I don't do that, will this happen? I guess we were just so afraid of something really bad happening and it being our fault, which is very unrealistic. And I do realize that now, but that was just our thought throughout the whole thing. And I wondered, you know, you talked about kind of that journey and having grown up living a certain way. And that is more true for a sibling than for instance, a parent, because for a parent, you might've lived half your lifetime, then you have a child. And then most of us might get a good eight to 10 to 15 year head start before the addiction really kicks in and becomes obvious. But as a sibling, you might be living with it, or certainly these personality characteristics, these tendencies for most of your life, depending. And would you mind just giving maybe a little synopsis of what your journey as a sibling was growing up with this? Yeah. Well, my brother started when he was a teenager. And at first, you know, we just thought it was teenage stuff, but then it started to get really bad. Um, and he was angry and he was destructive and getting arrested, going to jail. And for me, I felt kind of like in the shadows. That's why I wrote you know, the shadow child, because so much time and energy was focused on him and his use and getting him out of jail that I kind of grew up on my own. I had to fend for myself for most of my teenage and early adulthood. And then he got into treatment when he was 21. So I was 24 and that's how it went. Well, I wonder if you talked about things kind of starting with his active addiction when he was in his teenage years, which is pretty common. Mm -hmm. Did you notice any of those personality characteristics before he started using drugs? And what was your relationship with him like before all that? We had a pretty close relationship before that. We were super close, actually. We we're very opposite traits. I'm more of a rule follower. I'm more quiet and he's more outgoing and really willing to like challenge himself. And he had a lot of risk behaviors. He wasn't afraid to take risks. So I think, you know, that definitely intrigued him when substances came across his radar. Did any of the family dynamics that you came to know so unfortunately well, did any of those dynamics exist before he got into his addiction in terms of your interaction or the family's reaction to him? Yeah, I mean, I guess I never looked at it like that before, but I think in a way, yes, because he, you know, had ADHD and his teachers always had conferences and my parents, yeah, I do see it a little bit before that. And I wonder about that because in a lot of families, they can get kind of formed around this idea of the identified patient. Mm -hmm. This is the person in, in the family who has, or even better yet, is the problem, sort of in big capital letters. This person is the problem, we're focused on them. And it sounds like some of that did start before the addiction was going on. Again, with him getting the spotlight. And from what you said, you were comfortable not being in the spotlight. Yep. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, you're used to it, <laughs> but also comfortable with it. Okay, I'm good with that. He can get the attention, especially if it feels like negative attention. Oh, great. You can have all the negative attention. And yet I kind of wonder, especially as the older sibling, what's that like for you to, you know, stereotypically have the younger kid come in and initially they get more of the attention, they're the baby, all that kind of stuff. You're supposed to be responsible, but at a certain point that starts to balance out. But what happens for you when it doesn't? I don't really remember it affecting me when I was younger, but I saw it more in my teenage years when I needed my parents more. 
going through some of those challenges, um, you know, of dating or just trying to figure out my own independence, getting my license, just those challenges that we face. That's when I really started to notice like, oh my gosh, maybe I don't have a support system like I thought I did have before. And did you feel like you still needed to be part of his support system even as you were floundering a little bit looking for yours? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's always been a super important part of my life. Even when he was using, I was always there for him. So, yeah. Yeah. You talk about that sense of like, okay, so I need support around here. Did you feel like you had a voice to be able to say that? No. And I don't say that in a way that my parents would have shut me down. I think that my parents just had so much going on that I didn't want to cause any more stress on them. So if I voiced my concerns, I felt like, okay, maybe it's not that important and maybe they don't need that extra stress. Yeah, and I've heard that from a number of siblings doing family work over the years is that they'll say like, well, I didn't want to put extra stress on my family. I didn't want to burden my parents because they had their hands full with this sibling or other kid going on. And yet, what does that do to you? It makes you very quiet as an adult. <laughs> I feel like I... I mean, I'm almost 40 now, but I feel like it took me a while to find my voice, even within my friends groups, within my relationships, because I never wanted to burden anybody. And then I didn't know how to use my voice because I never had in the past. Yeah, and I noticed there seems to be kind of an underlying assumption that if I speak up for my needs, then I'm burdening somebody. Yeah. Are you shifting that? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I've done a lot of therapy work and I am definitely doing that. And the rewards have been great, actually. And I wonder maybe if somebody's listening to this program thinking, wow, that sounds good. I need to learn how to use my voice or maybe is scared to. What would you say that you know, maybe out of some of your own experience, strength and hope that might be helpful for someone struggling with that? I would say it's not like just go for it. I always say like take baby steps. Like, you know, if you have a really good friend, you know, just say how you're feeling and get their feedback on it. It doesn't have to be like just come out blazing with I'm going to tell everybody how I feel. Um, start small with people you love and you trust and see how it goes and then go from there. Wonderful. And if I can ask, you mentioned therapy has been really helpful. Do you engage at all with any family recovery fellowships? I do not. And no pressure there, but I'm going to take a second and plug them for other listeners. Because <laughs> <laughs> they are very helpful for people a lot of times. Things like Alan or Smart Recovery Family and Friends, stuff like that. You mentioned therapy has been really helpful for you. Can you think of any things within therapy that particularly stand out for you that helped you find your own voice and feel more able to express it? I mean, a lot of reading some good books that my therapist found, boundary work was huge in my therapy and finding my voice and figuring out why I hadn't been using my voice. Um, that was really, really helpful. Now, within your book, you talk about where your brother gets into recovery and you start to do work together to help spread a message of recovery for others and carry a message of hope, which is something that very much resonates for me. But then that, that starts to shift as well as you become uncertain about his recovery and what's really happening. 
Do you mind describing that a little bit? Because a lot of families kind of look at, if my loved one got sober, then there's the holy grail. Like we made it and they live happily ever after. Could you talk about what some of the reality was like for you? Yeah. I mean, we spoke everywhere throughout the Midwest, almost um, three, four times a week, you know, spreading hope. And then I started to see some red flags, but I didn't want to think that it was happening. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to see it until I was basically smacked in the face with the reality that he was drinking again. And it completely turned our world upside down because we thought he was sober for 10 years and he was always saying, I would never go back. I have my children. I have all of this. I mean, he had relapsed early on in his recovery, so it wasn't the first time, but we were just like shocked because we thought, like you said, like we made it. Here we are, we're doing so well. But the reality was that that wasn't the case. Well, I wanted there because, you know, we're hearing kind of a couple different sides of it. It's partly there's the thought, hey, we made it, we're doing so well. But you also mentioned that something about the family dynamic never really changed. And this family dynamic that so many people experience based in fear, walk on eggshells, make sure we don't say the wrong things. What if he relapses? That doesn't really go well with the idea that we made it. No. It sounds like you never actually get to let your guard down. Yeah, but I didn't see that when we were in that. Mm. What do you think made it difficult to see? I think we were just so happy to have him sober and alive that we just let things slide. So if you had to do that over again, what would you do differently? I would have gone through therapy myself. We did do family therapy in the beginning, but then there was never anything after that. I would have highly suggested my parents continue through therapy because you said at one point, like we identify them as the problem. But now looking back, we all played a role in that problem. And in the beginning of his treatment, we all went to family therapy and then it stopped. There was nothing for, okay, now what? How do we fix some of these dynamics? It was like, oh, he is sober. We're good. Move on with our life. We'll go on from here. And it's nobody's fault. I don't blame anybody, but I wish we would have stuck as a family in therapy. You know, one of the things that I do, I work at a treatment center and I run a family workshop there every week and, you know, get to work with families. And I try and tell people, but it's hard sometimes to hear. First of all, you have your own recovery. And we've talked about that a little bit, but so often that recovery is made contingent on whether or not their loved one is sober. Mm -hmm. So if they're sober, people suddenly say, you know, I don't think I need this anymore. I don't need to go to therapy or go to meetings or read the material or anything like that. And I think sometimes, you know, those same family members would be horrified if their loved one who's in early recovery from addiction suddenly stopped going to meetings or reading the material or going to the therapy, stuff like that. But as family members, we can just think like, okay, well, I, I think my work here is done. Mm -hmm. And what have you learned about that yourself? I've learned that it is never done. <laughs> it's a constant thing that needs to continuously be worked on because I don't know if trauma is the right way, but it is a huge part of your life and a huge thing that, you know, at least for me, I went through for many, many years. So just to be like, okay, he's good or we're good and be done problems arise in the future where you're going to need those supports and you're going to need to know how to handle those situations. 
Yeah, that idea when you say like, well, the work's never done. And you kind of said it with a smile and a laugh. And I appreciate that. And I wonder though, what goes with you for that idea that the work's never done? Well, you can never fully prepare for what's going to happen next. You know, so like my brother relapsed. Um, I don't know where he is in his recovery. We don't have a relationship, but he's still in our family. So there are situations that come up where I want to revert to my old habits and I have to remind myself and work with my therapist that you can't control that. This might happen, you know, so I don't think you're ever going to be completely free from things that happen. Which is the same thing we would say about somebody with the addiction. You know, there's always some danger of relapse. And for a family member, what do you think would qualify for you as a relapse? Um, for me, it would just be returning to some of those behaviors that he had in the past. And in my situation, his relapse was drinking alcohol. Now, in the past, he was using heroin. And I don't believe he's gone back to that. But the alcohol for him is just as bad. When you say like going back to an old behavior, would you feel comfortable giving an example of what one of those old behaviors might be? Sure. Just lying about his whereabouts, um, having to get up and leave early in the morning when he really didn't have anywhere to go, but he needed to get out of the house to do something. That would be a red flag for me. And it was for his wife. So things like that. And I wonder, can you think of an example, maybe a parallel for you as a sibling? What would a relapse to your old behavior look like? Mine would be trying to figure out where he is, what he's doing, <laughs> who he's with, you know, checking in with him constantly to make sure he's okay. That would be a relapse for me. Yeah, it's funny. I immediately came to mind when you said that the Family Recovery Fellowship, Al-Anon, one of their do's and don'ts is don't keep checking up on the alcoholic. And that can be really difficult for people, especially, quite frankly, with modern technology. People are like, okay, I can track them everywhere they go. And I'm like, that might not be good for either one of you. Right. Given that, are you ever tempted to check up on social media or anything like that or checking with family members and just kind of get a little hint about how he's doing? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. But then, you know, I have learned the 24-hour rule. So I think, okay, do I need to check in? And then I'm like, okay, wait till 24 hours and see how you feel in 24 hours. And then if it's still, you know, bothering me or something, then I wait, you know, and see. So I try to give myself some time to really think about it and not just react in the moment that that happens. Mm, it's an excellent idea. And Interestingly enough, if I'm working with people directly who have an addiction going on themselves, I'll say that idea of, you know, partly to pause and partly to recognize him hey, getting a craving. And sometimes I think family members might not recognize that they might have an analogous craving, that sort of craving to know that my loved one is okay. And that's a very normal, natural human thing to feel, especially about, you know, someone where they're a family member and all that kind of thing. And I wonder. Are there other things you can think of that you might do in the face of that sort of craving to either find out how they're doing or try and control their situation in some way, even with the best of intentions? What do you do to get away from that? 
for me, I like to maybe listen to music or I might talk to my mom about it and just say, hey, this is how I'm feeling. I might talk to my husband about how I'm feeling. A huge one for me is journaling. So I'll write down how I'm feeling, the whys, the hows, the what would I do? What would I do if I did reach out? What could happen? So kind of like just trying to process it all within my journal helps a lot too. These are fantastic tips. Thank you so much for that. Mm-hmm. That seems like a good place to take a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support in our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I now have two books out, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer. If you haven't checked them out yet, they're both available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. We also love and appreciate our listeners who support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Let's hear the rest of Ashley's interview. How long has it been since you've talked with him now? It's three years. And do you know if other immediate family members like your parents or any of them are in closer contact with him? They are not. We do live in the same city. Our boys play on the same football team. So I have seen him, but I haven't had any communication with him. And would it be okay to ask, maybe on behalf of the listeners, what kind of happened that led to that break? Well, he started drinking and he has split custody. So I did tell the mother of his child that he was drinking and he did lose custody for a period of time. And I don't think he will forgive me for that. Okay. So it sounds like the lack of contact is more on his end than on yours. Correct. So if he reached out today, how do you think he might respond? Um, again, I do want to protect myself from not reverting back to those behaviors that didn't work well for me in the past. So, I mean, I would listen to him and what he had to say and then take it from there, but I wouldn't have any expectations. And again, I would probably put things in place to protect myself from going to those old habits. What kind of things do you think you might put in place? I would probably meet with him in a public place and I would probably keep it short and just maybe mentally prepare myself again in my journal like, well, what if he says this? What would I do just so that I'm equipped to protect myself? I hear a lot of great work around boundaries and you mentioned that earlier and you talk about that a good bit in your book. Would you mind maybe explaining to our listeners, what are some of the things that you've learned around boundaries and that have been particularly helpful for you? Yeah, um, when he was in recovery, I had zero boundaries. I just let him do whatever he wanted. And I've learned that that isn't helpful for him in any stage of either his recovery or not, that wasn't helpful. So 
I learned that, again, it goes back to control. What can I control? What can I? And there are certain things that if he were to start blaming me, I would have to walk away. That would be a boundary. And just not putting myself in situations right now while I'm still working on myself that would cause me to revert to those old patterns. In your communication with him, what are some ways that you have or could set boundaries? Well, one of the things that I have learned when I do need to communicate with him is just to be very blunt with no emotions in it. You know, these are the facts and this is what I'm either asking you or just letting you know, and then leave it not open-ended so he can come back to me and blame me and those sorts of things. And. I often think of boundaries as being a way to really stand up for our values and our safety, as opposed to a way to try and control somebody else's behavior. Does that resonate for you? And how do you see that applying in the boundaries that you set? Yeah, that was really hard when we first started doing boundaries with our therapist, because it was like, I won't have communication if you're drinking. Well, that's not really a good boundary because you can't control that. So we really had to like step back and say, you know, I will talk to you on my terms when I am good and healthy. So just really taking a step back and thinking about, again, the things that I can control and my boundaries can't rely on whether he's sober or not, because that's not something I can control. And I hear that idea though, I could say, well, if you're not sober, I'm going to limit our communication or back away. But if you are sober, then I'd be happy to reestablish. Because I think sometimes people get into what I call like leading with a nuclear option. They're like, if you drink again, I'm never speaking to you again, which may not be true at all. And for the most part, it's usually not even what we want. We're hoping to scare somebody into like submission or behavior. And that's not very realistic because as we well know, they're going to do whatever they're going to do, just like any of us will. So I wonder in there, that idea of protecting your safety and your values, which by extension also means for your family as well, right? Because you're not just protecting yourself. Where have you seen that come into play given that your kids, as you said, play on the same team, know each other? Where do you see this maybe impacting them? Yeah, that one's been really tough because my son and his son are three weeks apart and they are inseparable. So I do keep communication with his ex because of our boys being so close. And my son's almost 13. He kind of has an idea what's going on. His cousin has filled him in and I, I leave it up my son's choice whether he wants to talk to him or not. But. I am always within eyesight of my son. In the beginning, my brother asked to take my children and I set a boundary that absolutely not. If you want to see my children, then you can come visit them at my house. But it is really tough because I don't want them to have a negative image of him or give them information that might be above their age. So I just say, you know, right now, um, your uncle, he is working on spending time with his family and getting healthy. And, you know, if you want to say hi to him, you're more than welcome to. If you're not comfortable, that's totally fine with you as well. Because I don't want to force my children to do something they don't want to do, but I also don't want to stop them if they do want to talk to their uncle. And it's a difficult spot for a lot of family members. And I hear them say, well, I don't want to influence 
how the kids see their uncle or their aunt or whoever. And yet at the same time, this disease of addiction often does run through generations and families. And so, especially when our kids are getting to an age where they're going to directly confront drug use, including alcohol, you know, recognizing alcohol as a drug, at what point maybe do we do them a disservice by not talking about what really happens so that at the very least they're forewarned for trouble or issues that they might run into and certainly we'll see in their friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my son, like I said, he's going to be 13. So he is in that age and he does know more than my younger daughters. My youngest is eight. So obviously she doesn't really know, but he does know what's in our family history and he does know what has happened in the past. I just didn't get into specifics on what happened recently with like the court case and everything. He does know that his uncle was drinking and that's why he didn't see his son. But yeah, it's definitely a conversation that we'll have to get into more as he gets a little older. Yeah. Well, especially as he moves towards the same age that his uncle started to slide into that stuff, it seems like maybe fair warning to say like, hey, by the way, just so you know, runs in the family, here's what it looks like. Yeah. And here's what happened with your uncle and maybe give him a, a clearer picture. Yeah. And you mentioned to circle back around the work that you used to all do together, going out, presenting publicly. In your book, you talk about how you continued that work without your brother. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what that looked like for you and what kind of shifts or transformations happened for you around this. Sure. Well, when we first started speaking 10 years ago, well, maybe it's almost 13, 12, 12 years ago, um, we did speak a lot of as, as a family. And then we started realizing that our family story is great, but parents needed some tools. So we started to develop programs that help provide tools and it kind of shifted a little bit prior to him relapsing. And so once he did relapse, we just more focused on the tools versus this is our family story. We're here to provide hope. So um, my mom's still an interventionist. She works with a ton of families and our programs are just more geared towards providing practical tips for parents versus this is our story. We do still share our story just in little snippets. You mentioned in your book that your brother, kind of true to type even from your childhood, was the one who initially had the spotlight. He had everyone's attention, the charisma, and you were content to sort of stand back. You said in the book that when he left fairly suddenly, you still had speaking engagements booked and you weren't sure what you were going to do. What happened for you at that point? I just had to face my fears and do it. <laughs> so I kind of like took over the role of, you know, some of the presentations introducing and stuff. So I was forced out of the shadows, so to speak. And it actually felt really good to uh, internally to say, you can do this. You are good at this. So um, I was forced, but I'm glad I was forced. And when you mentioned moving out of the shadows, that actually, given that the title of your book, The Shadow Child, at that point, you kind of stopped being the shadow child. Yeah. What's that like for you? And how's that resonated in other areas of your life? Um, I'm definitely have found my voice. I'm definitely more confident. My relationship with my parents is 10 times better than it's ever been. 
Obviously, it was really hard for them to hear how I felt during that time period. So they had their own therapy work around that. So we are in a really great place. And I hope that by my parents getting help and getting healthy and myself getting help and getting healthy, that ultimately that's gonna circle back for my brother who is hopefully getting help and getting healthy as well. I'm a firm believer, like I said earlier, that we all are in this and we all need to get healthy together. It's not just one person. Absolutely, and while we would never wish that the relapse would happen, Mm -mm. I can't help but notice that in a way it becomes a gift. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, the family might've just stayed in its pattern indefinitely if you hadn't been able to face the reality of what had happened. And again, it's nothing we would wish for, but finding those gifts within a relapse, finding those gifts within the family struggle can be very powerful and hopefully maybe reframe for the family rather than we've, you know, this curse happened to us and this terrible misfortune, but to be able to say, actually, we have been able to turn it into a gift. Does that resonate for you? Yes, definitely. At first it was awful. And then working on myself, I I do feel it was a gift. For me, it strengthened a lot of the relationships that I had put on the back burner because I had such a strong relationship with my brother. And I feel I'm happier because I'm not so consumed with my brother and how he's doing and where he is. I didn't realize how much I was caring until I wasn't anymore. Yeah, what a powerful message there for a lot of family members to maybe take a moment and look and see how much am I carrying? Mm -hmm. And I know there are so many people out there who would say, hey, sign me up, pile it on my back, I'll, I'll do that if my loved one will be okay. And it's hard to realize that no matter how much weight we try and carry for them, we can't guarantee they're going to be okay. And we can't even guarantee that we're making the situation any better by trying. And there's an opportunity, I hope, for some families out there, I hope don't go through the relapse, but still can pick up some of those gifts and recognize we could put the weight down. We could stop taking responsibility for someone else's behavior. And I say this often jokingly to people, but this idea that I'm going to make my well-being dependent on somebody else is never really a great idea for any family relationship. And yet we can do it with our kids, we can do it with our parents, we can do it with our siblings. But if you were going to do that, the last person on earth you want to pick is somebody with an addiction. Right. Like, what what a terrible choice of if you're going to be okay, I'll be okay. Go pick somebody else. Pick somebody who's kind of doing okay. And yet we can often turn to the person who's most obviously struggling. And as we've heard here, not the only one struggling, but just most obviously struggling and say, we need you to be okay so that we can be okay. And in a way, even though we're there to take weight off of them, we think, in a way that actually puts extra weight on them. Right. Because they can't help but notice, right? Right. That everyone struggles and I struggle. Yeah, I don't know if my brother would recognize it, but I'm sure it was a lot of weight for him to say, I have to stay sober because all these people are counting on me to stay sober. And I'm sure that was a weight that he carried that none of us knew. Yeah, you wouldn't immediately recognize that that was happening. Mm -hmm. As you said, Sometimes we take these things for granted. He may not have recognized it either. And yet it seems from what you've described that 
when he was struggling, his tendency or his temptation was to try and throw the weight back on you and say, hey, this is your fault. Yep. You know, it's your fault that I'm like this. And I've unfortunately talked to some family members who come, for instance, to the family workshop that we run at the treatment center where I am. And they'll say, man, I've been to some of these family workshops and it's just all about blaming and shaming the family. And I'm like, well, you're in the right place because we're not doing that here. But I know that it's easy for families to do that to themselves. And I've noticed that every member of the family is ready to take all the blame. The person with the addiction says, okay, I've messed up the family. And often if they lash out, they're actually lashing out out of guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. The siblings will say, well, I should have spoken up sooner. The parents will say, well, if we'd done a better job, you know, raising them. Uh, the grandparents will say, well, I should have raised my kids better so that they raised my grandkids better. And the kids, of course, look around and say, well, I, maybe if I was a better kid. But it's like everybody's ready to take that weight on where there's maybe the option to put it down instead. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, what have you learned about being able to put that weight down? Yeah, it's really freeing. When you're carrying that weight, you don't realize how much you're actually missing in life because you're so focused that you don't notice things. Like for me, it was taking away time from my children. I was short, I was snappy. I was same way with my husband. And when I put the weight down, I was like, oh my gosh, like the world's beautiful. I have all of these amazing people in my life who I've been lashing out at because I'm carrying all this weight. And I, I guess I just didn't realize how amazing things are when you put it down. It's beautiful. So as we move towards closing, I'd ask, what would you want to say to family members out there and especially maybe other siblings who might be going through or have been through some of the same things that you have? I just want people to know that whether their loved one gets sober or not, that there is hope that they themselves can find themselves. They can heal from whatever happened and they can go on with their life. Um, I spent so much time worrying and carrying his burdens that, like you said, when I put it down, it opened me up to so many possibilities and so many things that I missed out on. So there is hope no matter what happens to your loved one that you can find yourself. Beautiful. So hopefully lots of people are inspired by the message of what you've been talking about today. Where can they find your book and where can they find more information about you and your work? Sure. Uh, my book is sold on Amazon. I also did record my own audio book, so it is in audio form as well. And if you want to look at some of the work that we've done, yourchoiceprevention.org has all of our programs and stories and all kinds of great resources for families. Fantastic. So thank you very much for being on here. And I just want to wish you and your family, including your brother, but especially you in your own recovery, I just want to wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And that's Ashley Nowakowski's interview. Check out her book, The Shadow Child, and visit her page at ashleynowakowski.com. That's A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H-N-O-W-A-K-O-W-S-K-I.com. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. 
If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.